Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. I'm excited today to talk to Chuck Rocha. Chuck is best known for his work as a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders and as the architect of the successful Latino outreach strategies of the Sanders 2020 campaign. His new book, T.O. Bernie is out both as a memoir and a story of the Sanders campaign. Beyond his role with Bernie Sanders, Chuck started Solidarity Strategies over 10 years ago, and prior to that was the political director for the Steelworkers, rising to that position from working in an East Texas rubber factory himself. Chuck's story in politics might be the most unique in all of the business, and I'm excited to talk with Chuck today. Chuck Rocha, tell me a bit how you grew up. I'm not the stereotypical DC political consultant, not only by how I talk, but the story of where I come from and my lineage, as they would say. I grew up in the piney woods of East Texas. The nearest city was Tyler, Texas. And if you want to know how far away I lived from Tyler, uh, if you got in the car and need to go to the grocery store, it was about a 35, 40 minute ride. But I grew up there in East Texas. Uh, my mom and dad met at church. My father was Mexican. My mama was white. My dad left at a young age. And so I got to grow up like a lot of rednecks in East Texas, hunting and fishing and being on a working farm and knowing how to drive a tractor. I think it's just things that you normally don't hear these days from political professionals who are running presidential campaigns for a living. Uh, so I've gotten to live like a lot of different lives, but growing up in East Texas with a white grandmother who made the best fried chicken in the world and the, a Mexican grandmother who was my father's mother who made flour tortillas every day. I think I see how well I was blessed and there was a reason I weighed 300 pounds when I graduated high school. People know that Texas has a high Latino percentage, but that's not necessarily the story of East Texas. I think of East Texas, you know, I, I grew up in the deep south. I think of East Texas is almost a little bit more deep south, closer to Shreveport, closer to Texarkana. Plenty of white folks, plenty of black folks, but maybe not big pockets of Latino uh, folks, Latino voters. What's it like uh, for Latinos to grow up uh, in, in East Texas in Piney Woods? Years ago, it was very racist, to be honest with you, because there just wasn't that many folks around and segregation got to East Texas very late. And my family, the Rocha family and the Ramirez family were the two of the only Latino families in Tyler, Texas. Uh, my grandfather, Pete Rocha, came there and had 15 kids. My dad was one of 15. So like in most places, it didn't take us Mexicans long to start taking over. And we built a, a Mexican restaurant. Uh, Mr. Martinez did, not the Rocha family. And so they had El Charro's. And so it was a Mexican restaurant that was very popular. And this is how it started. Now, there had been Latinos in East Texas because anybody who knows Tyler knows it's the rose capital of the world because of this wonderful sandy soil that we have that's great for raising roses. But most of those were undocumented seasonal pickers that would come in and out. But as time went on, there's just been more and more, like a lot throughout the South, Latinos that have come there, made their families there, made their homes there. And it's now become a big part of what you talk about around Longview and Shreveport and Texarkana, where I grew up running the roads, that Latinos now have become such an integral part of the culture there. Now that one Mexican restaurant, there's a hundred Mexican restaurants in Tyler now. And I think that it's helped the community at large really diversify and understand the importance of what immigrants mean to this country. I've read your book, T.O. Bernie, would recommend everybody read, read your book, T.O. Bernie. So I know some of your story. Uh, you know, you mentioned going to school, being really more focused on football in, in high school than anything else, uh, but finding yourself uh, working in a, a rubber factory right after school. You, can you talk about how you uh, got there, uh, you know, even before starting uh, getting active in the union, uh, which is certainly a big part of your story as well. But even before getting active in the union, a lot of folks who work in politics haven't ever made a living working with their hands. I don't know, maybe don't know too many people who make a living working with their hands. Can you talk a bit about what it was like your experience as an everyday factory worker? I think that that experience is one of the determining factors that in being raised by my grandfather that really has aligned me on my politics because I learned what it was like to work on a tractor when I was 13. You know, going to work in that factory when I was 19. I and another part of that story that's very important is I'd had a baby with the woman and taken full custody of that baby when he was less than three months old. So I had full custody of a baby. I, at the time, was a milkman hauling milk to grocery stores and I needed health care. Does that sound familiar to a lot of Americans out there? Like I needed a job with health care because I just had a baby. Uh, so my dad, who had worked there 
for 20 years who I'd never really had that close of a relationship with. He paid child support. My mama made sure of that, but I called him and he cashed in a favor to help at least get me an interview at the factory. Now this job at Goodyear tire plant was the best job between Dallas and Shreveport. Like it had $22 an hour, union contract, Cadillac healthcare, a pension, like all of the things as a young man, I thought was like hitting the lottery. Like I see people with real money now. Well, back then I thought I hit the lottery by getting a union job with healthcare. So I tell you all of these stories to say that as I work for political candidates and we talk about going out and communicating with an electorate who's worried about healthcare, worried about feeding their kids, grew up with nothing, like I'm literally that voter. And I think we have so many well-intentioned folks who are trying to run campaigns who went to Harvard and Yale and have read all the best books about how to run campaigns. They've never really lived that experience. And being a Mexican and a big overgrown brown man with bald head, uh, who's kind of a big old boy, you know, I'm an intimidating factor. So I've watched racism and how people look at me a little bit different. And when I open my mouth, they're like, oh my God, you sound like an old white man, but you look like a thug from the hood. Like all of these stereotypes have helped me understand the electorate better and understand what real people on the ground have went through. I've been beat up by the cops. I've been a single father at the age of 19. I had a truck repossessed back in the day. Like I've lived these real experiences and now get to run presidential campaigns. So when some egghead person who's doing modeling steps to me and goes, this is what the voters are going to care about because we talked to three of them. I'm like, let me tell you something, old boy. Let me tell you what they really care about. They care about feeding their family, why they have to pay so many taxes and why rich folks have so many more advantages than they do. And I learned that working in that factory. Can you talk about how you go from the kid hitting the lottery to getting this great job uh, working in a factory and, and supporting a young family to getting focused on what's going on around you and getting interested and involved in union politics? I never was involved in anything before. Like I was not civically engaged growing up. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Like I wasn't involved in anything at school except for sports. I was like every other redneck in East Texas again makes me a pretty dang good political consultant when we talk about trying to reach people in the South. Like I went to high school, I played football. When base football was over, I played baseball. Sometimes I'd run track, which involved no running, but me throwing a shot put because I was a big old fat boy. When I got off of school, me and my buddies would go to the woods and we'd hunt and we'd drink beer. And on the weekends, we'd chase girls. And I was just like every other kid. And so, you know, me thinking I grew up with some golden heart and I was going to change mankind or I cared about some public policy, I failed government in high school. I barely graduated high school. When I went to work in the factory and joined the union, which I just did because everybody else did, I wasn't an activist by no means. And then I tell a great story in the book about becoming a union steward because nobody else wanted to be the union steward. And when the guy told me he would hire somebody and bring somebody in to do my job for me, when I was doing union work, I was like, sign me up if I'm getting paid not to do my job. And that was very self-serving looking back on it. It wasn't because I wanted to help my fellow brother or my father or sister. Like I ain't sugarcoating this for y'all. Y'all know me well enough to know I'm going to tell you the truth. And, but after I got the job, I was like, oh my God, holy hell. Like I can tell the manager that he can't punish somebody because in the contract, they have to follow and abide by these laws or these rules that we have because of a contract. And it just literally opened the door of me being able to unlock something that had always been there, which was protecting people. My mother was a young mother. I had protected her my whole life and my sister. I had this natural inkling to be a protector. And I'd been a protector of my mom and my sister as a six foot one, 300 pound, 19 year old kid my whole life with hair halfway down my back, riding a motorcycle. There was a rebel streak there to be fighting against the system. Well, the system was the Goodyear management. And now I had the power through the union to protect my guys who I then fell in love with because they were my brothers. It opened up and put me where I'm at today because I was really good at it. I had a passion for it. I was a good communicator. The white guy, like me, the black guys like me, the Latinos like me, because, you know, I was a working class fella who'd grown up with them and their kids. It wasn't because I was Latino. It's because I was Chuck Rocha. I was the kid they watched play football or the guy that lived down the street. Like I was part of that community. And that led me to being able to go outside the plant and organize and start getting involved in political campaigns and going to democratic meetings, all because I joined the union and became a union steward. If I hadn't done that at the beginning of my campaign, I literally would have been sitting here today. Well, let me take a sidebar here with you. And I think you maybe would be a great person to have this conversation with. But there's a word that's thrown around a lot in, in politics, especially progressive politics, uh, and that's organizing, organizer. Uh, and I think perhaps that word is overused or it's overly broad. Uh, it's maybe difficult to define in, in the way that it's used. And I think that comes from a well-meaning place. It's not, not a criticism. But can you give me the Chuck Rocha 101 on what political organizing is and how you think about it? 
I think about having the power to mobilize means put people to do something they normally wouldn't do. The first time I got pulled out of the factory to air quote organize, I was sent to Dallas Fort Worth and my job was to get all the union members in Dallas Fort Worth to vote for a particular congressional candidate who was a Democrat because he had stood with the unions. So the way I did that and the way to organize, and I'm telling you this to say, this is my definition of that is I went to every one of those factories. I met with every one of the presidents of those factories. He told me who where every one of the shift stewards were and gave me their phone number for his factory. I printed out leaflets of where this congressman stood on our issues and where the opposition stood against us on our issue. I would deliver those flyers to those factories every week and give them to those shift stewards who would then take them into the work site or hand them out there to tell those members to go vote for John Doe for Congress because he stood with the union. And then every week I would have a call with each one of all of those union presidents with me because back then there was no Zoom or conference calls. There were no cell phones back then. We all worked off of beepers, believe it or not. And so I was quote unquote organizing and through what I had organized, which were all the union members in that area by going through the proper protocols of the leadership, the shop stewards to get those leaflets into those plants. What I just described to you is like, Today's email organizing is today's distributed organizing. The problem with the way we talk about organizing today than when I started doing organizing is, like you said, people think because there's some kind of keyboard warriors that there's some kind of an organizer when in fact they wouldn't know shit about organizing if they actually had to go out and talk to people and knock on their door or go mate with some union steward president who don't know you that you have to talk into why would I want you in my plant handing out political uh, leaflets? Like that shit is hard. And if you can do that, then the organizing that they do today behind a computer and a keyboard is easy. So I don't know if that's what you wanted, but that's the facts, Jack. I like it. I like it. Well, t- tell me about the politics of uh, Texas when you're getting your political wits about you. We're talking what, late 80s, early 90s? I mean, talk about the, um, you mentioned you're a little bit of a late bloomer in terms of uh, getting um, getting bitten by the political bug. But But when you do, tell me about the politics of Texas that you're seeing around you. Because I became a union steward early and like I was 22 when I became a union steward, Uh, I started volunteering with the local Democratic Party because, again, it was a good way to get out of work. I was delivering tables and chairs. There were a lot of cute girls there. So I would hang out down at the Democratic headquarters instead of all the ugly men I worked around at the factory. So all of these things, again, are self-serving to me, but I'm unbeknownst to me till later in life, I'm learning. I'm learning about precincts and precinct chairman and about how the elections work and how a primary works and a runoff works. And so I'm just volunteering for all kinds of stuff at this point. And this is about the time that Ann Richards is running for governor in the early nineties. And so Ann starts paying me a little stipend through the union to put up yard signs and to knock on doors. Again, what's an organizer? And Chuck wrote you, what makes you a different political consultant? In my early twenties, I'm knocking on doors. I'm wearing a beeper. I'm driving a big old truck. I'm putting up yard signs and I'm figuring out how to help Ann Richards get elected. I'm getting paid a little bit to do it. So this is how I'm learning politics, not knowing I couldn't have told you how many congressmen there were. I couldn't have pointed out Nebraska on a map. I was as ignorant as the day is long when it comes to like what schooling means to you. But what I did know is how election worked and how a precinct worked and how you get this paper list and you should go just talk to all these people about why Ann Richards should be the governor. So I'm learning campaigns through the eyes of the old school organizing model of field. And so that led to doing more congressional races till in 1996, the AFL CIO pulls me out of the factory full-time, pays me like I'm in the factory to go out and run that first organizing campaign in Dallas, which then led to me running a special election in Galveston and then in San Antonio. And so it just starts snowballing because unbeknownst to me, people in DC see me as a phenomenon at this point. I would learn this later that I was a test model for them to see if a rank and filed ignorant ass farm boy from East Texas could actually do what they had only hired college graduates and eggheads to do prior to was to run these campaigns. And so I was breaking the mold. So they were giving me more and more to do to see if I would fail or what my limitations were. And long story short, within six years of that first time getting pulled out of the factory, the steelworkers made me their political director at the age of 29. Yeah, I mean, so you say that you were one of the only, maybe the last rank and file member to hold that job. And and I, I guess previously, as you say, that that job might be held by some campaign manager or some other political operative who didn't have a connection uh, to the union, but was a, of a mercenary uh, as opposed to somebody who had come up off the factory uh, floor. But what's it like to be the national political director of the steel workers? What is, what is that job? What does that job look like? 
it's an organizing job on steroids. So now you're at a headquarters and you have hundreds of local unions and you have to figure out a way to then get all of those union members to vote for their own best self-interest. While you have a Republican party going to them saying, well, it don't matter what the union's saying about collective bargaining, all them Democrats wanna just take your gun or they just want you to love all these gay people or they'll talk to you about telling you what religion you should have. Like they'll try to use some social anecdote every day to try to get a union member to vote Republican. Over the years, they've gotten really good at it. Donald Trump was an artist at it. The basic job was how can you best communicate the message to those members and what we set up at the union again, prior to email, but we had fax machines. We had went from beepers to some mobile phones to fax machines. And so we set up a rapid response system within the union to where every union hall had a fax machine. And when Congress would try to do something that was anti-union, this was groundbreaking back in the day. We would send a fax from the headquarters to every local union that would then take that fax and print. That fax was a flyer that I had talked about using in Dallas, remember, that showed what they were doing. And so we would give those flyers to the local unions via fax machine. They would then make hundreds of copy of them and distribute them throughout the, the work sites, asking them to call their member of Congress to vote against somebody trying to do away with collective bargaining or trying to strengthen OSHA or whatever that may be. And so that, along with the political mobilization plan that we implemented, are two of my biggest legacies there. Whether it's in this era or maybe before, who do you look at as your mentors? Who, who did you learn under? So many people who've helped me along the way. Again, to your point, I've never been to college. I don't have, a, I don't have any degrees. I've went to some specialty programs, so I didn't look ignorant and I could have fancy things on my wall, but I, I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I do have a PhD and hard knocks and stitches in my face. But, you know, there have been people who've helped me along the way. In the local union, it was John Nash, an old white man who wore overhauls every day, who was the local union president of 1,200 men. He looked at me as an equal. He never judged me as being a Latino. He's still alive today, and he did more to help me and mentor me than anybody. He also ran the Central Labor Council. When I would go to the steelworkers, they would be an old lawyer there who would end up being the secretary treasurer named Jim English. And Jim always looked out for me. You know, I made lots of mistakes. Uh, Jim would always mentor me. I always I was uh, in awe of him because he was brilliant. You know, he was a lawyer. He'd been a general counsel of the union. Uh, and so Jim really was who I looked at at the union. And then uh, at the later part of that, it would be other political directors of big unions who also had come from rank and file, like Vinnie Pamvini who came out of sheet metal workers 19 in Philly, who had worked with his tools. And it was just a, the epitome of central casting of the Italian dude from Philly who says, use guys and these guys. And Vinny was as good as the day is long. Him and Rick Deagle and Larry Scanlon, all these old political directors, when I showed up at that table as a 30-year-old kid, took me in. Now, the other half of them hated me because they thought I was a kid. But these old men took me in and mentored me and helped me along the way until I left the union and started my own firm. And you, you, you mentioned some of the, the changes you made within the Steelworkers Union that, that had a real impact. Uh, but in terms of, you know, either campaigns or, you know, unionizing efforts, what, what do you look back at some of the key moments uh, in, your, in your tenure with the Steelworkers? I'm most proud that we built our own call center within the headquarters for union members and their daughters and sons to use to call other members. Remember, back then, people still had landlines. So instead of vending out and using an outside vendor to call our own members to talk to them about voting or about the issues of the day, uh, we built and put in a predictive dialer on the second floor of the headquarters and then would staff it with volunteers and family members to come in and actually do the calls themselves. No other union besides Ask Me, the state, county, municipal employees, had their own call center. And for, you know, the steel workers, which back in the day weren't known for being technologically advanced, to put in our own call center. We had hundreds and thousands of calls every day. If we want to call all our members in Texas in two days, we could do that and ask them, you know, to do something, organize, vote for something. It was just a big part of that. And I think the second thing I was proud of is we created an internship program for sons and daughters of steel workers who never had worked in the factory, but were going to college to come spend summers working for me and other departments of the headquarters to experience what we were doing and what their mom and dads paid for with their dues money that put them up and gave them, you know, a summer of work to do that work. And there was a lot of young folks who came through. I was just on the phone with one this morning who end up working after many years for Ted Kennedy 
in the U.S. Senate, who's now a pretty famous labor lawyer here in D.C. suing Facebook over shit. And he was my intern back in the day. So those things make me very proud. You're associated with Bernie Sanders and campaign politics. The Steelworkers endorses campaigns. You mentioned being active in, uh, you know, for Ann Richards. Where do you feel like you learned about campaigns? Where did you cut your teeth specifically on political campaigns? It's evolved. I mean, it's not one thing, but I started learning the most in 1996 when I got to work for and around the Martin Frost campaign in Arlington, Texas. Martin had an old school mentality of field. He was very field oriented. Martin was a white Jewish man representing a district that's half black in South Dallas and half and half Latino. And it had just a couple rural counties uh, in Navarro County, just south of Dallas. Martin Frost had a big emphasis on the field part of a campaign. So getting to watch somebody run a real field operation that was door knocking, phone calls, and actually being in the community, getting black and brown voters to early vote. I'm really lucky that that's how I started my first big campaign, seeing that in action. Now, Martin was a little crazy too. He knew where every four by eight yard sign should be hung as well. And he had a map he carried with him. And if they weren't there, he would call me because I'm the one with the pickup truck to go put up his four by eight signs. So when your campaigns are talking about the importance of yard signs, I've lived it every single day. Oh, well, well, 2010 seems like an inflection point for you. You've been rising up the ladder of the labor movement, political director at the Steelworkers, but you decide to uh, detour a bit, start your own consulting firm, Solidarity Strategies. Tell me how you make that decision to, uh, to take a, a sidestep out of the labor movement and to start your, own, uh, start your own firm. There was so much things going on in my life then. That little baby boy who I had taken full custody of when he was 19, turned 18 and graduated high school. I never had much of a personal life and the woman that I had been with, we were in hard times at that time. That was ending in my life. Also, we had just elected Barack Obama president. We had just elected a black man, so proud of, and my son was so proud of. And then there was turmoil in the union. You know, the union membership was tanking. Uh, there was not a lot of expansion happening. We were taking lots of cutbacks. Even some of my own staff came after me in the union, accused me of embezzlement, accused me of taking money and my expenses of traveling around the country just because it gotten that so ugly inside the union. Now, all of those charges would end up being dismissed, except for one that I am guilty as the day is long one. And I talk about it all the time. And because of a mistake on my expenses after a, an audit by the Department of Labor, because of these people that came after me, I was convicted of a felony of a $280 mistake on my expenses. And if you do that for a union, it is literally a felony. People are like, how can you have a felony for less than $500? I'm like, well, it happens every day. And I am responsible for that. And I'm responsible for that mistake. And I tell everybody I did do that. And because of that, you know, it helped make me a better person, but it also helped me figure out that I wanted to do something different, that it was a sign that I wanted to spread my wings and go out and actually try to create space for people of color, create space for people like me who had made mistakes in their lives. And that was the real turning point to say, I'm going to go to DC and I'm going to create something that teaches young brown and black kids how to run campaigns and try to create a legacy of diversity and inclusion and change the way politics are done through my own personal story of mistakes or the hardships that I described from getting a truck repo to understanding how payday lending works because I used to use a payday lender to make ends meet when I was in my 20s. So I think all of these life experiences led me to create solidarity strategies, which back then in the beginning, I was really worried. I didn't know if I would ever make it. How would I do it without the union? And little would I know that 11 years later, which is today, I would look back and have had so many successes and do so much with my life. I've just see how much that if you work hard and you play by the rules and you're honest with people, anybody can do it if I can do it. And so what was it like starting your own business? I mean, what do you know now about starting a business, running a business that you wish you'd known, uh, that you wish you'd known from the jump? First thing I wish I'd have known is that you got to pay taxes at the end of the year and they just don't take the taxes out of your check like they do when you work for somebody. Now, let me stop right there and remind all you what I'm saying. Now, at that point in my life, like every other working person in America, I had worked for somebody my entire life. Since I was 15 years old, I had had a job. And in every job I had had, unless they were paying me cash money, they took taxes out. Now, the first lesson you learn starting a firm is that they don't take taxes out. And you just can take all the money that you make and you can just put it in your pocket. But at the end of the year, the tax man and your accountant comes to you and says, you now owe the federal government this much money. So the first and the most important thing that I ever did 
is right after I started the firm in January 1 of 2010, I called the old political director of the Seafarers Union, who was my mentor, Terry Turner, and said, Terry, you started your own firm. Is there things I should know? And he said, yes, the first thing you need to do is hire yourself an accountant because you're going to have to pay taxes on the money that you make. And I was like, well, I already paid taxes. He goes, no, 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 no. You got, it's different when you own your own business. So he set me up with a guy named Joe who also owned a bar and has an accountant. That's how us union guys did it back then. And I met down with Joe and Joe was like, we'll take care of this. But Joe pretty much said to me, he said, the way these taxes work is every dollar that you make, you should put 50 cents of that into savings. Cause if you're living in DC, your taxes are going to be between 30 and 48%. And you're just going to pay them at the end of the year. Thank God. I had that meeting and Terry told me that because I have heard so many people trying to start a business, get to the end of the year and then have to owe taxes and have to take out a loan because they've spent all their money. Knock on wood. I will tell you that, you know, we've never had to take a loan out and I've always paid my taxes. Uh, it was just a good business decision. And the second piece is figuring out what your network is then to go get business. Like, how do you get business? It's fun to say I'm a political consultant. What's not fun is who's hiring you and actually paying you money. How did you, how did you go get business in those early days? This is my first advice I'll give all of you is that no matter what you're doing in your political career, from the time you're an intern to the time where you may own your own business is you should be nice to people because at some point in your life, you're going to need those people again. And so that has come back to pay me back in spades. Now, keep in mind, I was the political director of the union for 11 years. And so I wrote millions of dollars worth of checks and gave that money to nonprofits and to political candidates. So people knew me and they knew me as the guy who gave out checks for the steelworkers. So I had quote unquote friends, but after I wasn't writing checks anymore, half of those friends went away because they were only my friends because they wanted checks. But then half of them stayed and were happy I was starting my business. So you start there with people that you have relationships with. So the first job I got with my firm was with the Blue Green Alliance, because guess what? The regional director of the steelworkers out of the West was the chair of the Blue Green Alliance with the president of the Sierra Club. They wanted to expand their political operations. I just left the steelworkers. So they brought me in to run the political operations of the Blue Green Alliance, which is the Alliance of Unions and Environmental Groups. And then I sat down with the, my old friend, Yvette Herrera, who was the executive assistant to Larry Cohen at the CWA. And she sets me down in her office and I'll never forget. She said, I need you to help me do three things. I need you to help me create an outside organization. I need you to help me with my internal organization. And then C, I need you to help show us how we can raise more PAC money from our members. And I'm like, easy peasy. I've already done all three of those with the steelworkers. And actually the first office that the Solidarity ever had was in the CWA office building where I paid them rent to work there because they were my biggest client. But again, past relationships, Blue Green Alliance, then CWA. Then the third contract was with a group called Vote Vets, the largest veterans liberal group on the left working to advocate for veterans' right because my, one of my good friends, John Soltz, who I met doing the Blue Green work, we reconnected with and he wanted help doing and building relationships with unions. So he hired me. And then that led to doing general consultants for all of those groups, then starting doing phone work because I was at CWA and then mail work. Uh, because I had the printers at CWA and that bloomed into me now being a full service firm that's, you know, run presidential campaigns. And last cycle had over a hundred clients. You know, we were been, we've grown a lot from that first two or three clients. You mentioned some of the, the early clients in the very early days, you know, as you're getting your feet under you, uh, was there a specific client, a specific moment, a specific campaign, you know, in the early days of solidarity strategies that you remember thinking, okay, maybe this is going to work. Maybe this is starting to come together. Yeah. Vote Vets kind of fits that model. You know, Vote Vets started uh, when John came back from Iraq and John Soltz, who was a captain back then, you know, who's now like good guy, like a, a lieutenant colonel, like he is just amazing. And he's built this organization with his own blood, sweat and tears. And his idea was in the beginning was to push back on the Iraq war and then to get Iraq war veterans to run for office and then create a super PAC where he could advocate for those veterans running. It was then that aha moment of, my God, you can really build political power within the party and not have to be a part of the party. Working with John from the beginning and still having a consulting firm with Vote Vets today, they have stood by my side through thick and thin. Uh, through all of the all of my adversities in my career, personal and professional, 
And they've taught me that if you build a great organization, you can have real political power in this city. And so that was my aha moment. Now I have a super PAC that looks just like Vote Vets called the Restaurant PAC. And I have stolen, you know, with all due respect, a lot of their model because it's literally the best model in DC. Most super PACs and C4s and C3s come and go. Uh, Vote Vets has been a, a mainstay because they have really, really done uh, what they said they would do, which was empower uh, the next generation of veteran voices. Yeah, and I want to dig into the Sanders campaign, of course, with Solidarity Strategies has a decade of work under its belt, as you mentioned, 100 clients, I believe, in the most recent cycle. But what's a campaign or race, a client that stands out in your experience, one where you learned a lot, one you're the most proud of, maybe not the most glamorous, but, but, but something that really speaks to what Solidarity Strategies does and is? People would normally say it would be being a general consultant or the senior strategist for Bernie Sanders, right? Getting to be on the airplane, being with the senator, standing on the stage with AOC. That's cool. But those aren't the ones that really stick with me. I love Bernie. I love the campaign. I love the team. And I wrote a book about, you know, you can go buy tobernybook.com if you want to read about it. I think about a 35-year-old lawyer in Providence, Rhode Island who I made friends with one time because I went and spoke at some labor Latino event at Harvard in Boston one time and met this guy named Jorge Alorza. And while we were there, we just became friends. You know, we're both younger Latinos, just kind of hung out that weekend while we listened to different speakers talk about empowering the Latino voice. And he said, someday maybe I'd want to run for something. I was like, well, brother, if you ever decide you want to run for anything, I'm your man. Here's my card. It's been great meeting you this weekend. Well, about a year later, my phone rang and it was Jorge. And he had told me that Angel Tavares, the mayor of Providence, was going to run for governor. I think it was 2014. And he said, maybe I can run for mayor. I think I'd like that. At the time, he was uh, he had been appointed by Angel to be like a housing court judge. But Jorge had never been married. Jorge had a criminal record. He'd been picked up for shoplifting. Jorge uh, lived in the same house where he grew up in Providence. People don't realize, but Providence is almost 40% Latino. He was born, his, his uh, family were Guatemalan immigrants who had come to Providence. So long story short is we ran Jorge for mayor and we had no chance of winning the primary. We were running against the city council president. We were running against another rich white guy from around Brown. And long story short is we beat the entire system and elected him in the Democratic primary. And then we got to beat a guy named Buddy Cianci, who maybe many of you may have heard about, who was a legend back in the day in the general election. The Prince so, of Providence, right? The Prince of Providence is a great book if you haven't read it. He was an old school Italian guy who was really mobbed up, but uh, it was it was great. And so that's a race that sticks with me, right? And so four years later, which was two and a half years ago, we run for re-election and he's easily elected. And now... You know, today we're here, we sat in 2021 and Jorge's considering now running for governor of Rhode Island. And, you know, he's now married and got a kid and like, I'm really proud. Like, I feel like I've lived that journey. And those are the kind of races that stick with me. Like the ones that people told me I couldn't do and that he couldn't do, who is a regular person who, you know, has lived the trials and tribulations like I had of not having much growing up and kind of overcoming some hardships. Like that's where I want to make my money. That's where, that's the kind of shit that really gets me going. This year we elect one of the first Latina city council women in Austin. It's races like that where she had never run for public office and we beat three dudes without a runoff. Like those are the ones that are like, mm-hmm, I still got it. Again, most people associate you these days with Bernie Sanders. You, you Again, your T.O. Bernie is out and people can read about your, your journey in the Bernie Sanders world. But in your book, you also talk about at the start of the 2016 campaign, you even uh, went and pitched uh, Hillary Clinton before you are of the Bernie Sanders world. Maybe it's 2015 at that point. And you talk about the very different vibes in those meetings. Yep. So when I went over and pitched the Hillary crew, y'all should know that Bernie had not announced. And so she was going to be the preeminent person. Nobody else was going to run against her. And so I was just starting the firm out. So I was like, you're going to need some Latinos over here. So I, I just told the story in the book about going over to the big media firm and doing the pitch. It was probably the biggest room I'd ever been in to do a pitch. It was super intimidating. It was something I won't forget. And it's just a different vibe. And it just reinforced to me that the campaigns are not all the same. And these, these presidential campaigns for sure are not. I talk about it in the book. I was like, some of the things that I didn't get an opportunity to do would end up being a blessing. You know, thank God. Hillary didn't hire me and she didn't hire me because I talk about this in the book, but she didn't hire me because I couldn't pass vetting. Keep in mind, I just told you I have a criminal record. I don't hide from having a criminal record and I've done my time and I've paid my fines and I have come out the other side of it, but I literally couldn't work on that presidential campaign because I couldn't quote unquote pass vetting. 
I would go on to help run the 2016 Bernie race and then run the most successful Latino outreach operation in the history of all American politics for Bernie in 2020. Now, none of that would have been capable of me doing if I went inside and worked for Hillary. So sometimes I think things happen for a reason. You talk about pitching Hillary Clinton, a big fancy boardroom, 20 plus people around the table, but then pitching the Bernie Sanders campaign of a very different meeting. But can you talk about how how different that that connection was? I love this story. And I love talking about this story because like you said, and you teed it up nice, is it couldn't be more difference in how these campaigns look at electorate policy and just how it was run. So I had been in negotiations with Jeff for several months about coming on board with for the 2016 campaign. The final meeting, I'm sitting with him in a little Mexican restaurant next door to a little townhouse on Capitol Hill where he was running the presidential campaign out of pretty much by himself. Again, much different meeting, little Mexican restaurant. We're having a couple of tacos and he's wanting to tell me that he wants to hire me to help do some things for Bernie. In the beginning, it was, can you help us identify people of color that we can hire into senior positions? We don't know that many people of color. We're from Vermont and we've never run a national race and we should, we need, we understand we lack in diversity. That was my initial job. It would go on to be way bigger, but that was the initial ask. And, you know, me and him were negotiating a little monthly retainer for my time to go do talent searching for staff. And I remember at the end of that, me saying, now, Jeff, you should know that I have a criminal record and that if you, you know, wanted to Google me there, you can find some obscure articles about me back in the day where I had gotten convicted. Uh, yes, it was $500. Yes, I never went to jail, but you know, it's something that I am not going to lie about and you should know. And I want to be upfront about it because I don't want to do anything to hurt Bernie or the campaign. And I remember Jeff giggling and I was thinking, well, that's odd to be giggling about it. And he was like, <laughs> he said, Chuck, you didn't think we knew about that the first time we talked to you? He said, I've talked to Bernie about this. And Bernie's exact quote was, well, uh, did he do his time? Is it over? Well, if it's, why do we worry about that now? We want to hire Chuck. How long, he said, and this is the quote, how long are you supposed to be punished for something you've already paid the price for the rest of your life? No, we want him to work here. That's behind him. Well, I remember wiping a tear from my eye and being like, uh, you have me and now you have me forever because I've never had anybody else say such nice things to me or not judge me on a mistake that I made, you know, 10 years ago and I'll do anything you need me to do. And so that's how it all started it would grow into being something beautiful and giving me an opportunity to make more money, to do more good work, to hire more staff. Like it literally changed the trajectory of our firm, which was doing great. It just put it on afterburners. You talk about what you were brought on to do, sort of a very sort of a narrow role that expanded as the 15-16 campaign grew. What was it like in those early days of the Sanders 16 campaign uh, campaign before he gets the big momentum and seemed to be a genuine threat to win the primaries? What was it like being that very underdog shoestring campaign? I remember we had a budget that was $30 million. And I was thinking, there is no way in hell we're going to raise $30 million. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to go give a bunch of Latinos and Black folks an opportunity to work on a presidential campaign that they would never get. And I would just stay focused on the positive. I got to hang out with Jeff. Jeff is a great guy. Jeff had left politics and had bought a comic book store, for God's sakes. And Bernie had got him to come back to do this, right? So me and Jeff become really good friends. I knew what I knew, and he knew what he knew. And what, a lot of things we didn't know, we were really good at doing that together. Before the big explosion... We were just kind of going along. You know, we had hired organizers. We were going to do this thing. But it was really the explosion of all the money late where I talk about we were building the airplane while we were flying it. It was because of that we lost that year. Like if we could have had more time to prepare to have $200 million. Remember when I said we were prepared for $30 million and I said we couldn't get there? We ended up raising $200 million. So we were just throwing money at everything mainly at organizers because Bernie Sanders does believe in grassroots organizing. And we just didn't have enough time for them to be on the ground long enough to really win when it got past the first couple of states where we had done massive amount of organizing. Because of that, it made us big players in 2020. We won Iowa with the most votes. I don't care what you say about how many delegates Pete Buttigieg has got. We also won New Hampshire and then we won Nevada. We will go down as the first presidential primary ever to win all three of the first four and not be the nominee in the history of all of the presidential primaries because we started earlier. We had learned from our mistakes in 16. It made us a, a powerhouse for 20. 
Well, what, what were some of those mistakes from 2016? Again, a lot of it is just scaling, not being able to scale as quickly as necessary once the money started coming in. But but what were you looking to, to do differently in 2020 than, than happened in 2016? Start talking to voters earlier in states past Iowa and New Hampshire. Lean into the Latino outreach more by doing bilingual communications, a multi-layered operation that would start really, really early and really have Nevada be a secret weapon that nobody would see coming because of what I would build there with the Latino staff in Nevada and try to put together a real firewall in uh, Super Tuesday. Everything worked there except for the last part. And we knew that all of our polling showed we were going to be the nominee easily if more than three or four people stayed in the race. So when the race all of a sudden constricted down to just us and Biden after Super Tuesday, it was over because we just knew at that point we didn't have the support that others had. So building the infrastructure in advance was the biggest thing that that we changed from 16 to 20 because uh, we end up running statewide operations in 22 different states. You know, we we raised and spent hundreds of millions of dollars. So we done it the way I wouldn't do anything different in 20, except maybe, you know, go after Biden more after Nevada. What do you think is most replicable from the Bernie campaign? As you mentioned, you're, you continue to work in municipal campaigns, the governor's campaigns, but, you know, for a, for a congressional campaign, for a state legislative campaign that doesn't have $200 million, it doesn't have hundreds of volunteers. What lessons are there from the Bernie 2020 campaign among Latino voters, but even more broadly, what lessons are there uh, for campaigns that don't have the resources uh, that the Sanders campaign could bring to bear that they can still that they can still learn from and still implement? One is you can learn that if you start early enough and do persuasion enough, especially to infrequent voters, you can actually cobble together a coalition to beat almost anybody. Now, a lot of times what's lacking is the resources to start that early, but I've proved that Latinos will show up and vote and at big numbers if you will start communicating with them early. We also proved that Latinos care a lot about working class issues. So you don't just talk to them about immigration, if you talk to them about minimum wage, about Medicare for all, about the environment, that they will show up again. And you can't just put us in a category of talking to us in Spanish and only about immigration. The last thing we proved is that if you actually expand your targets and talk to infrequent voters and newly registered voters, that that will pay you back as much dividends as what we call prime voters, which is where most campaigns spend all their time and resources. So those are the things. And that's the reason I wrote the book is I wanted to open source what we did with Bernie, which was start early, spend a lot of money, have multi-layered operations and expand the targets for every campaign to uh, steal if they want to, because I would just want, I just want to see more Latinos participating in our democracy. That's great, great advice. I mean, as you say, money's important, but if money was important, uh, Michael Bloomberg or Tom Steyer would have would have put together the type of uh, of strength that the, the Sanders campaign uh, did. Um, but what do you, you you've spent a lot of time with Bernie Sanders for several years now? What is something you know about Bernie Sanders, the guy that the, the rest of us don't? Uh, that he don't eat that much, and that he doesn't have lunch. He has a little breakfast. He don't eat lunch, and then he'll have dinner. That's one thing you should know about him. You should also know that he's really really critical of where you spend money. So he's not this freewheeler. Uh, Chuck, we don't want anybody getting rich off this campaign. You can make some money, but we want to make sure this is people's money and that we spend the money. Also, you should know Bernie Sanders loves bumper stickers. He, he loves bumper stickers. Like the only time in the campaign Bernie Sanders ever hollered at me is when we didn't get the bumper stickers done in time because he wants everybody that went to every rally to have a bumper sticker. You should also know that he really, really is an avid baseball fan and player. A lot of times when we would be at Bernie's house in Vermont and we would have senior staff, not senior staff, when we, there was just a handful of us that ever went there, but it's the senior advisors and Jeff and all of us. Uh, to kill time between you know brainstorming sessions, we'd go outside and we'd throw around a baseball and he had a little backstop set up. And Bernie Sanders at 78 has got an old wooden bat and he would be hitting batting practice to us. Now, for folks out there that love Bernie, that's like a little political porn for you to be out there playing baseball with Bernie Sanders. I see my privilege and I always thought about it. And don't worry, I took a lot of videos and pictures to prove it so I could show my grandkids. And who on the campaign had the best? I bet everybody had a Bernie Sanders impression. Who had the best Bernie uh, impression on the campaign? Hands down, Ari Rabenhoff. And then second is Jeff Weaver. Uh, and it's because they spent so much time with him. Jeff has known him for 38 years. Uh, he just was with him all the time. He does a great one. And then Ari, who traveled with him, you know, the last four years, five years, has a great, like my accent for Bernie is horrible, but still enough. When he called me, Chuck, 
I want to talk about the bumper stickers. He calls them bumper stickers. What, it should not be that hard to get damn bumper stickers. We just want the bumper stickers for the rallies. And I was like, man, I'll never forget getting cussed out by Bernie because I ain't getting the bumper stickers quick enough. And what, what do you look back on as like the, the high point, the moment in this in the 2020 campaign that, that is going to stick with you? Look, I called Nevada the crown jewel, and it was by far the highlight. My God, Bernie Sanders won 70, 60, 70% of the vote. He won 73% of Latinos. I'd put my blood, sweat, and tears into that thing. It had to be won after we had barely, quote unquote, lost Iowa, barely won New Hampshire. And then the whole campaign turned and looked at me and was like, okay, where's these Latinos going to be? Pressure that I was on, I talk about in the book, which was so immense. And to win that, I remember stepping out back of the campaign office and just sobbing. Like I had just had a weight lifted off of my shoulders. It was one of the greatest days of my life. Like it's when all the work and all the things that people said you couldn't do, you pull off. It's just a day I'll never, ever forget. You mentioned Nuestro PAC, borrowing the model from, from Vote Vets, who you've done some, some work with. But talk a little bit about Nuestro PAC, the role it played in 2020 and, and what you envision for the future. There never really has been a Latino super PAC that did partisan outreach. There's lots of nonprofits. So we wanted to create something to keep the momentum going. We had proven we knew how to talk to Latinos better than anyone just based off of the election results. So we created a partisan super PAC to try to raise money to make sure we could go in and get Latinos out in the general election for Joe Biden. Because at the end of the day, our goal was to beat Donald Trump. We felt like in the beginning, it was Bernie Sanders had the best shot of beating Donald Trump. But now that we've lost, Joe Biden has to beat him. So I went out and helped raise you know, close to $8 million with a team of people like Jeff and others. And so we got to run operations in many states like Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania that we won. And we continue to date. Uh, because now we have to win a bunch of congressional and Senate seats in 2022. And we want, we've set up Nuestro PAC now, hopefully, to be the Latino outreach arm for a lot of the establishment and people, work that needs to be done to go in and actually talk to Latinos. Chuck has been all over the place talking about Democrats. And, you know, there's this whole narrative of Trump overperformed with Latino voters and all of that. And, and, and you can Google Chuck and Chuck has talked at length about that. Uh, but Chuck, without looking in the re- rearview mirror too much, you know, without talking about names like Trump and Sanders and Biden, what is your message to Democrats as to how they should be thinking about better appealing to Latino voters moving forward? Talk to them about economic populism. Talk to them early talk to them through more than just TV and more than just field. Like it's just start early, talk to a broader swath of them and talk to them about things, get this Democrats, that's going to make their lives better. And you have the perfect opportunity because Joe Biden has been delivering like he said he would. So there are shots in arms, there's money in bank accounts, and he's proposing things like a job bill and an infrastructure plan. And all of us as yellow dog Democrats like me, that's all we should be wanting to do is be able to tell people about all these successes. But we got to spend money to go tell them, them being Latinos, what we're doing to make their life better because Republicans are going to keep spreading misinformation about us being socialist and we don't care about this. And just it's time to stand up and get a little tougher and go, you're a damn lie. Look in your check account and you got a Band-Aid on your arm because you got a vaccine. You're welcome. One of the things that Solidarity Strategies brings to bear is cultural competency. Uh, What do you see in communications that are targeted to Latino voters that show you right away that the people behind the ad are out of touch with the Latino community? I mean, as somebody from the Deep South, you know, you can see sometimes in ads that are meant to be gearing toward conservative Southerners that the guy in the ad is holding a gun the wrong way. He's not holding a gun the way Hunter would hold it, right? What is something you see in ads geared to Latino voters that just sort of send a signal to you, something is off here. First is the Spanish. You can tell when somebody Google translates an ad because the way you Google translate an ad is not the way that Spanish is spoken. So to do the proper culturally competent campaign ad is you take the English ad and then you literally rewrite it in Spanish the way it would sound in Spanish, not Google Translate. So that is a big, big, big no-no. And one of the first and easiest ways to know if it's really been done culturally competent. The other way is that Latinos are not a monolith. Everybody says that, but there are huge differences between Cubans in Miami, Mexicans in San Antonio, Puerto Ricans in Orlando, Dominicans in New York, 
and all of the folks in LA and in Las Vegas, right? If you're doing a Latino ad and you have a consultant laying music tracks over Spanish language, even if it's Cuban Spanish in Cuba, if you're using Tejano Spanish music and not some Caribbean Cuban music, then you've already lost the competency there because people understand the difference. It's like when we want to have a taco truck in Miami, when Cubans don't eat tacos, or they love tacos, but it's not part of the culture, right? Or what is a papusa or all the different food that goes along with that. Imagery matters. And you've talked about that before. I think it's in the book, or maybe I picked it up in some other things you said, but the importance of music and food and family, maybe even specifically sort of a, a, a matriarchal uh, emphasis on family. But can you just speak to a little bit of that? We went deep into the Latino community in East LA and where we had an office. That's where all the Latinos, for the most part, live in Las Vegas. And on a Saturday afternoon at a high school that had an open soccer field, we, the campaign, hosted a soccer tournament of the four Latino soccer teams in the area. During that, had food, Mexican food, because most of these folks are Mexican, had Mexican music. So we've combined sports, which is soccer, right in their community. We hired a taco truck and folks to come out and cook. We had music playing. You have this cultural competency now of you're in the community doing stuff for the community. You have an upbeat vibe. Like This didn't cost a whole lot of money. Right? Like this kind of organizing is just a hat tip that we are here. We care about you and we're going to help you have fun today on a Saturday. So like, like that's just some, that's just some one-on-one organizing pieces. The other is, is that Latinos, because we've come here from other countries and we haven't been that long removed from those countries is that music and the food, it really ties us back to home. So it's just a more powerful narrative than white people and somewhat black people because they've just, y'all, they've both been here longer. The average age of a Latino in America is just 27 because we're just newer immigrants. And because of that newer immigrant experience, the food culture and the music culture takes us back to a time that's just not been that long ago. So it's an emotional connection. And I, you mentioned the importance of economic populism, uh, but within that, I know you are a big believer uh, in, in aspirational tone, aspirational messaging. I stole that from Jeff Weaver. Like Latinos are the most aspirational people in, in the country. Uh, Latinos are more apt to start small businesses. We're more apt to you know, want to see wealth. And I think some of that's why a lot more of them voted for Donald Trump because they were sold a bill of goods and believe his carnival barkerness, you know, him being rich so he can make you rich because we aspire to be rich or we aspire to be successful. Not so we can have a golden tower in New York, but so we can pay for our kids college. Being aspirational, being entrepreneurial is built into the culture of a people that I like to say are good at the hustle. Like you can't get off out of the airport in some Latin country where you got some kid trying to sell you something because A, that helps them be able to eat. But also we're just hustlers. Like that's why you have farm workers who come across the border to pick crops and then go back to Mexico because they're just chasing the work because they want to work. That's why there's Latinos lined up at the Home Depot, documented or undocumented, willing to work. Like we work is the backbone of our culture. Not that it's not for black or white folks, but because of the newer immigrant experience, it's just something that ties us back to the community. As someone who works a lot in the progressive space, but who also has deep roots in small town, rural America, what advice do you give to well-meaning progressives when it comes to avoiding language or avoiding tactics that are either going to go over the head of blue collar communities or maybe even antagonize blue collar communities, the people who might otherwise be on board with what progressives are offering? Well, I always like to start this conversation by saying woke white consultants are not going to save us. And because we're not a monolith, you should really be listening to somebody in the community. And that even goes to what we call ourselves, for God's sakes. Like, is it Latino? Is it Hispanic? Is it Latinx? Is it Chicano? Is it Tejano? And guess what, boys and girls? All of those are right, all depending on where you are and who you're with. These young Latino activists today like the word Latinx. And I think I dig it too, because guess what? It's not gender binding. Like that's the Latin part of Latino. And if you're in a group, bunch of woke white or woke brown folks wanting to call and self-identify Latinx, man, I'm going to return that favor every day and twice on Sunday. But if you're in New Mexico, New Mexicans don't consider themselves Latino. They consider themselves Hispanic. And if you are in Texas, many Mexicans, uh, Latinos in Texas consider themselves Tejano. 
And there's a Chicano movement in East LA that goes back generations. So uh, the first advice is to uh, hear somebody from the community who lets you know how most of the community self-identifies to help stay out of this labeling problem that many of us get into. Uh, you've hired a lot of people over the years. Are there consistent traits you're looking for across job types? Obviously, there's the basic proficiencies, but how does someone stand out in the process? What are you looking for when you're, when you're hiring people? Dude, I, this is not the good question for me because I do not, I am not the stereotypical, let's hire the person with the best resume. I'm looking for somebody who went to a community college or who's still in college or who has you know, student loans out the wazoo, just trying to get through college. I'm looking for somebody who wants to hustle. I can teach you how to do campaigns. I can show you how to do it. I cannot teach you how to hustle or how to be nice to people. If you're charismatic and you hustle, Jesus Christ, I can teach you the other parts of this thing. And I want to hire people who are hungry, hungry to excel, again, the ascension ladder to success or to whatever. My business partner right now, Luis, is a DACA recipient. He was born in Mexico. He came here when he was 13. He was an honor student in high school. He went on to a great college, public college at Fresno State. You know, he had done an, an internship here. He don't come from anything, pretty much undocumented except for the Obama executive action when he finally had a paid internship or fellowship with me. That was five years ago. He's now an equity partner in my firm. That's the person I want. My vice president, Eileen Garcia, I met when she was 18, when she was a freshman at the NYU class in DC, when I spoke to their class about diversity and inclusion. And I just lightly threw out that if any of you brown or black folks want a paid internship at some point while you're in DC, hit me up because every year we have a few of those available. Eileen reached out within the first you know, couple of weeks after I had done speaking. I brought her in as an intern, for God's sakes, when she was 18. She's now the vice president of my firm at 22 and was the national surrogate press director for Bernie Sanders also, thanks to me. Daisy Gonzalez, who is the other vice president, was born in El Salvador. This was her first job out of college, and she can run the whole firm. Like These are the people nobody else would have thought about making or extending the ladder. And that's been my recipe. And I, I'm on my 108th person working in the firm, a person of color who I've mentored the same way of those three. So that will be my legacy, not some damn campaign I want. This is a question I borrowed from the economist Tyler Cowan, but he might, to paraphrase him, he, he might ask about the Chuck Rocha production function, meaning you've been at the elite levels of operative strategists for years now, but there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people willing to work hard. But Chuck, what's made you different? What do you think is unique about you that you've been able to be so successful in what you've done? Life experience. It's, it just means something to be able to be a single father, you know, at 20 and have to raise a kid by yourself with a lot of help from my grandmother and my mother. To have a felony conviction on my record, right? Like live with that scarlet letter every single day. To never go to college a day in my life. Like any of those three things that I just mentioned should eliminate me from ever working even at McDonald's. And I currently run the largest Latino-owned political consulting firm in the entire nation and have run several presidential campaigns. I'm not bragging on me. I'm saying that's what makes me different when you ask that question. And the reason I talk about it so much is not to raise up that I'm some badass who overcome all of that, which is true, but it's to show some other kid who's in community college or who may have made some mistakes that if you work hard and you're honest and you are charismatic at some level and people like you, this is the only industry in America where you fail up every day. People are getting work because they know somebody. And so if you can get in it with somebody, and that's why I created Solidarity, is that you have a place to come mentor and do that work. I'm just not like all the other consultants. I know what they do, and I've studied what they've done, but I'm living proof that you ain't got to go to college or live some perfect life out in the suburbs with a white picket fence around, you know, with a dog and a couple kids to be the American dream. Well, let's end on a recommendation, Chuck. You've been so generous with your time, but what's something, and this can be this can be a comfort food. It doesn't have to be brain food, but what's something, a TV show, a book, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? I'm not a prolific reader, except of like polls and focus group type stuff. Because I barely got out of high school, I just read so slow that I've never taken the time to read books. But uh, I started now listening to audiobooks and it's changing my life. 
because I'm listening to things that I think are really cool. And so I'm learning again as a 50 year old dude, like it's just something that's really, I would recommend. I never had time to read, but now I work out in the mornings and I run. So I listen to books. So Maria Hinojosa, the wonderful Latina journalist from PBS, Latino USA. I read her, her book was the first one I listened to. My God, I laughed. I found myself crying. It's great. Everything, these are the two bookends, literally. Is And then like last week, I listened to Matthew McConaughey's book. Now, me and Matthew are from the same part of East Texas, and we talk a lot alike. Listen to how he grew up in a trailer house in East Texas and had this crazy family. Like, it's just really been giving me a light here recently of, of something I'd highly recommend folks do if they don't like to read is to listen to books that you care about. Well, and folks, certainly check out T.O. Bernie. We've only scratched the surface here on Chuck's life and, and Chuck's experience in the Sanders campaign. So, Chuck, the Tyler Rose of politics. Chuck, thanks so much for your time today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.